0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, How Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers Improve Treatment Decisions for People Living with Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the Association for Molecular Pathology, or AMP. And we'll be hearing from um, Dr. Burke um, as the program goes on, describing what they do in their services and programs. However, um, I also want to indicate that we also, um, there are many other organizations that help us to promote these programs, collaborating organizations. And they um, actually, so between um, uh, our and between Cancer Care and between um, all of the collaborating organizations, we have many of you on the call today. There are 310 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Egypt, Canada, India, Iraq, Israel, Laos, Oman, Poland, Portugal, Switzerland, United Arab Emirates. UK, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well, and it's really a credit to all of you for spending this next hour with us to learn more about this very important topic. Now before our program actually begins, I do have, I also just want to indicate that today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and a contribution from Lily, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program, so it makes a big difference for us to get that support, so thank you. And now before we actually start the program itself and hear the speakers, I do have just a few questions to ask you just coming into the program. So for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to, I'll read questions, you'll also be able to see the questions, and you'll be able to respond to them, they're all yes, no questions. The first question is, I understand the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine in predicting response to treatment. Either yes or no. The second question is, I know why The molecular portrait of cancer is so important in choosing specific cancer treatments, yes or no. And the third and last question of this series is, I understand my pathology report, yes or no. Okay, I want to thank you very much for participating in this polling. It really helps us to get an understanding of what you know coming into the program. Um, So thank you very much for doing this. And now I'm going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Ruane Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. Dr. Chris will be addressing an overview of diagnostic technologies and biomarkers in the context of COVID-19 and how these technologies improve treatment decisions. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris.
2: Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you all for joining us today. Um, the, uh, I'll, I'll try my best to demystify uh, this uh, term, a uh, biomarker, and, and it is sort of a simple concept, and actually it is basically some characteristic of the cancer cells that make up the uh, the cancer that you are fighting uh, that is defining, that, that says um, what it is and also increasingly gives us a clue as to what might be the best way to combat it. Um, I think the first question that we have to uh, answer uh, when uh, we are faced with uh, something that appears to be cancer is to make sure it is cancer. Uh, And one thing I would like to uh, clear up is that in 2020, there is only one way to be sure to know that you have cancer, and that is to uh, examine a tissue uh, or a bodily fluid uh, under the microscope by a uh, pathologist. There is no blood test. There is no um, scan that can diagnose cancer. In 2020, you must have an examination of uh, a piece of that cancer that is affecting you uh, examined by a pathologist. I know that's a, a question a lot of folks folks have. They think that a scan can tell you you have cancer. It cannot. Um, the other important questions that that come up right away are you know the site of origin of the cancer uh, and the type of cancer. I'm going to speak more about that. Knowing where the cancer started from. Uh, In knowing uh, more about it, which type of lung cancer, for example, I'm a lung cancer specialist, I'm going to be talking mainly lung cancer, um, that takes us to what kind of treatment. And the whole dream and the uh, uh, realization of precision medicine uh, gets better and better as we better understand uh, what makes that cancer tick that's in your body. When we understand that, then we can combat it more effectively. Uh, Just a couple words about how we get these tissues. I think the number one way to do that is to do some kind of a biopsy where uh, either a surgery is done or a needle is placed into uh, the uh, spots of cancer, either through an endoscope or through the skin, uh, and tissue is actually obtained, uh, and that tissue looked at under the microscope. The other way that can happen is a needle can be placed into a, a suspected spot of cancer, And uh, by um, an aspiration, by sucking out the the actual cells into a syringe, those cells can be examined by a pathologist. We also can examine various fluids uh, that uh, come from the body. We can examine phlegm. We can look for cancer cells in urine. And we can look at cancer cells in fluids that accumulate because of the cancer. Many of you have heard the term pleural effusion. Fluid builds up underneath the lung can be removed and studied under the microscope. A fluid can be found in the cavity around the heart. Those things can be examined. But the bottom line there is those are cells that can be stained and examined by a pathologist and the diagnosis of cancer confirmed. The key to diagnosing cancer and the first piece of information in deciding what kind of cancer it is and selecting the treatment is the pathology, both histology and cytology. The next step is to look at various proteins on the cancer. And that can be done by, again, tests done by the pathologist, so called immunohistochemistry, where they stain the tissues that are removed from your body uh, and for the presence of different proteins. And many of you have heard tests of, for the estrogen receptor, for example, a PSA, uh, the test probably done for prostate cancer or for a lot of different cancers now, PDL1, a test about uh, that gives us a hint that immune treatments might be helpful. Those are tests, uh, immunohistochemistry looking for specific proteins on the cancer cell. The next large group of tests are the DNA-based tests where the uh, DNA of the cancer cell is examined. Uh, Also, the RNA of the cancer cell can be examined. Uh, You may have, uh, those of you that have uh, faced breast cancer, you've heard the term oncotype. That is a RNA-based test, uh, and those tell you very specific characteristics about about the cancer. Some blood tests can be helpful. Um, uh, CEA would be one of them, uh, often used for uh, colon cancer, and uh, CA125 used uh, very often for uh, treatment of ovarian cancer. So all of these different biomarkers, all of these characteristics, as I mentioned already, can be used for diagnosis. The next thing is to use them for treatment selection. And I mentioned a couple of these already. If your breast tumor has the estrogen receptor, it is very likely to benefit from uh, a drug that uh, attacks the estrogen uh, driving capacity of, uh, of that uh, hormone. Uh, conversely, if you don't have that estrogen receptor, drugs that target that pathway are very unlikely to be helpful. And your doctor can then choose uh, therapies which uh, have a greater chance of benefit. Uh, what's very commonly being used now are DNA-based tests. And, and I think lung cancer is probably the the uh, common cancer where the most ones of these DNA-based tests are formed, where um, the uh, presence of certain cancer-causing genes like ALK or EGFR uh, can be detected. And if you find those uh, cancer-causing genes, it says that drugs specific to damage to that gene can be helpful. Uh, Conversely, if you don't have those, those drugs are not going to be helpful, and that's a useful piece of information, too. Uh, So even though um, you may not have one of those uh, markers, those drivers, it's still a very good piece of information in helping your doctors make a decision. And and I know a lot of people are very discouraged when they don't have a mutation in EGFR or ALK, but... One thing that we do know is that those tumors that don't have those mutations are much more likely to respond to immunotherapeutics. They can help people with each of our mutant cancers, but not to the degree that those that don't have it. And the last thing more and more is that by these genetic tests can help your doctors uh, look for the presence of cancer and help you assess your risk from, from cancer. So i rushed through a very, very complicated area. I encourage you, this is all new. You have to Learn about this through your healthcare team. Be uh, open to talking about these issues and, and to get a clear explanation uh, for you. Uh, in the uh, as this information comes through, but by understanding the characteristics of the tissue, you're going to have the most precise there, uh, uh, treatment and your best chance of benefit. Well, a couple quick words about COVID. Number one, uh, it's it's clearly disrupted uh, everything. Uh, But I would urge you to be very uh, circumspect about letting it disrupt your cancer care. I think for the diagnosis of cancer and the treatment of cancer, um, it's very, very important not to let COVID stop the testing and and treatments for your cancer. You need to look for ways to do it safely. You need to look for ways to minimize the risk to you, to your family members, and to the staff. So don't say I'm not going to do it say, can I find a way that's safer than the usual way I used to do it? I think there are some tests that we can probably slow down, surveillance tests. You know, my doctor checks a CAT scan every two months. Perhaps checking every three months could be safe for you if you're not having side effects and having a good benefit. And that's something you need to talk with your doctor about. So treatment, diagnosis tests, they really can't be postponed. Work with your healthcare team to get them done on time or as close as possible. Other tests you can be more flexible with, but by all means, discuss it with your healthcare team and stay safe.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was an outstanding presentation and uh, really, set the, really set the context of today's program. So a lot of wonderful concepts that you presented. And uh, uh, so thank you. And I know it'll be helpful to everybody um, to think about these things and during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of myeloproliferative neoplasms program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and professor at Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine in predicting response to treatment, and questions to ask your healthcare team about your treatment and quality of life concerns.
3: It's my pleasure now to
1: turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Thank you, Carolyn.
3: Um, And thank you, uh, Dr. Chris, for um, starting us off so well with uh, his overview and words on COVID. Um, So next couple of minutes, I want to talk about, um, actually through a few stories about certain diseases and how diagnostic techniques that have improved and biomarkers-specific testing, what we call precision medicine, um, really is the mainstay and, and uh, has revolutionized the way we treat cancer. Um, so as we just heard, you know, we, we used to diagnose cancer in quite a simple way. We would see, you know, and cancer is a very broad term. It's a cell growing abnormally. It could be something that's microscopic that is uh, caught at a stage when it hasn't changed structure or caused symptoms. And it's just, um, but it, co- it could, it could be something that obviously has caused great symptoms and has created a an abnormality, a growth, a mass, a lump. I think that's the way most people think of cancer. And in quite simple terms, historically, and still today, as Dr. Chris said, you know, sometimes we're doing scans, surveillance. We're looking for things that might have grown back, might have shown up. We like to hear people um, checking themselves to make sure they don't see any evidence of of a cancer returning. But we've gone so much deeper than that. As Dr. Chris outlined, you know, we need to get some of the the cells that are part of the cancer, the cell that's gone wrong, and we can really, you know, sort of, open the box and figure out what makes it tick. Um, in some cases we can subvert what makes it tick in many cases with our newer therapies. Um, and often the cancers, just like, you know, infections and other things, they kind of, they throw out marker signals, things that we can pick up or collect on sometimes floating freely in the blood, sometimes based off the cells, um, that are, are either a way to judge how the cancer, um, might behave and how to treat it, how much of it is left, um, and a number of different things. So I'll tell you the story of, of a disease I treat a lot of, which is called chronic myelo leukemia. It's not a, the most common form of leukemia, but it really was a, an example of how targeted treatment precision medicine really changed the whole game. Um, historically, this was a cancer that would change the numbers in a blood test, and people had symptoms, and we knew that it caused, it was the first human cancer linked to a genetic abnormality. So that was interesting that we could look at the cell and and by techniques we've had now for many years, we could look at the chromosomes, the DNA, the, the structures that make up the cell and say, this, this is this type of cancer. But um, in about 22 years ago or 23 years ago, the first clinical trials um, started using a, a medication called Glivec which um, now that we knew what made the bomb tick here, we could diffuse it. We could really go in with a drug that was targeting exactly what um, that marker that we saw in this cancer, what, how it changed the cell. Um, and that was an example that really changed the way we treat cancer. Other treatments were on the horizon. Hormone treatment for breast cancer, Dr. Chris had mentioned. Um, so there are many ways to subvert a cancer. You know, starve it, block something that it's using, to block, block a circuit, Um, uh, you know, have it fall on its own sword, as we say, come with a programmed cell death, get the immune system to attack it, et cetera. So with this chronic myeloid leukemia, um, not only did we develop a targeted drug, but the beauty of it is we had a very good test in the blood called PCR, which from, I call it soup to nuts, from the beginning when someone had a lot of this chronic myeloid leukemia in their system and they were symptomatic perhaps and they were just getting started on treatment, all the way down to the point where the cancer was 50 to 100,000 times smaller than the size where we started, where often, you know, years earlier, their blood had gone into remission. Their bone marrow would not have shown signs of leukemia. And gradually, uh, and slowly but surely really in this case, the leukemia got down to such a low level we could barely detect it. We also set a different, a a very interesting example of this leukemia where people could go into remission, um, but yet we could still see a vestige of the tumor or the cancer. We could still see this marker, the fingerprint, as they call it, in the blood. But that didn't mean that the patients weren't doing phenomenally well. And we have now patients 10, 15-plus years off treatment. They've stopped their treatment. They may still, with the very most the most sensitive of these diagnostic tools, be able to see the leukemia, but they are in remission and what we call functionally cured. So we've not only changed the way we can treat cancer with, with these technologies and biomarkers and precision medicine by figuring out what makes the cancer tick. We have we can develop exon tools to help follow a cancer and watch it go away. We can then... Um, change the way we can cure cancer by, in some cases, giving a treatment to the point where the marker has remained so flat and so low for a long period of time that, in some cases, we can safely remove treatment and not see the marker go up, and that's consistent with a cancer in remission. Um, so this extends to many other cancers. We have um, so many great examples of how um, cancer um, biomarkers and tumor Antigens or things that tumors have, sort of flags that they wave, say, "Hey, I'm a lung cancer cell, a breast cancer cell," um, uh, or even help us define a cancer that we don't even know where it came from. Um, that will tell us, again, what medication to use. Is this enzyme turned on? Is it, or is it, you know, this switch been turned on? let oh, right, let's have, let's give it something that will turn off that switch if we have such a drug. Um, it's led to what I call cross pollination, where you'll have a drug used in, in melanoma, a skin cancer, then used for a leukemia called hairy cell leukemia those cancers have nothing to do with each other. If you think of them in the clinic or to a patient, they, the patient's problems are quite different. But in the laboratory, they both might have something called a BRAF mutation. And that's, that's a, a common switch that's been thrown on in those two cancers. And lo and behold, the treatments for those two very different cancers work in, in, similarly. So it really can be such a powerful technology. going I think I hear more about that in the next um, talks about um, how it can uh, really contribute to treatment and, and the molecular um, landscape of a cancer. I also treat what's what are called myeloproliferative disorders. And another quick example, some people might have a very similar condition. They might have excess red blood cells, for example, so a condition called polycythemia vera, which historically we might treat by just uh, having them donate blood, give, give aspirin therapy. Um, it's not a, um, a harmless condition, but fortunately, it's a very slow-moving condition. But with the technology we have today, we can now... Dig so much deeper and understand this. At this moment, the, this condition looks quite quiet, but it's it's harboring a few tricks up its sleeve. It's got a few different mutations, where the mutation level has changed. It's gone up. It's gone down. Markers like what's called a JAK2, which is a the switch that gets turned on most commonly in this condition, polycythemia. We can measure it. We can look to see what other things might cooperate with it, and and um, help patients avoid complications potentially. Know who to treat differently. Um, and get, really give them feedback about how they're doing, especially when they're on to more complex therapies. So definitely to emphasize what Dr. Chris said, getting your testing done is so important. For from, from my world, I have patients who I, I, I desperately rely on them getting a blood test every few months to make sure their leukemia is staying in remission or is continuing to respond. And I understand how hard it is in the current landscape to submit to going in for a blood test or, or any tests, but um, we don't want people to lose uh, the, the progress they've made. We don't want to see cases, um, um, you know, that we could have won, where we have a bigger battle in front of us. Um, so, do what you can to stay on top of your diagnostics. And then, in the last few words, keep asking questions to your healthcare team about your treatment. We had a we had a um, an initiative in CML, uh, this chronic myeloid leukemia. And it was simply a button that patients would wear. It was actually in many developing countries where there wasn't as much communication as we unfortunately often have in the U.S. And the simple question is, what is my PCR? So it was literally the patient kind of in a subtle way messaging those around them, their healthcare team saying, please tell me about how my, my, my biomarkers and my precision tests are going because I need to understand. Don't just tell me everything's fine. So um, it's so important to understand what the doctors are looking for, what the tests mean. You don't have to be a molecular biologist like some of our speakers on the call are, but, if you know that your PCR is supposed to go from 10 to 100 after three months and it hasn't and it hasn't budged and you're not hearing that information from your doctor, you have to ask questions. What are we going to do? What's our next plan? Um, also, sometimes when we get um, in, into the approach of targeted therapy, it can be somewhat, not mysterious, but uncertain. On a good note, many of our targeted drugs and precision medicine therapies are very narrow. They're essentially smart Medications that can really focus on just an abnormality one and not have a lot of collateral symptoms or damage. chemotherapy in the, in the in the years past was a little bit more broad and often was much more diverse in the side effects they could cause. But talking about your quality of life and your symptoms really helps us learn about how to better use these drugs because we are asking some of the most subtle questions. We're lucky that we often have medications that don't have the classic side effects where I, I might lose my hair, I might feel nausea, I might not be able to eat it as well, I might you know uh, be extra tired. Uh, we want to hear everything. So your quality of life, keep a diary, talk to your team, bring someone with you to the appointment that can reflect back what's going on. It's all important in this era of COVID, in this era of molecular diagnostics and advances like we've talked about, and just for everyone as we continue to make great advances in cancer. So let me stop there and pass the ball to my colleagues.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was outstanding as always. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Tanyas Bakai Saab, and Dr. Uh, Bakai Saab is leader gastrointestinal cancer program, Mayo C- Clinic Cancer Center, professor, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, consultant, Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And Dr. Bakai Saab will be addressing clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bakaysa.
4: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Messner. It's always a pleasure uh, to be uh, talking in this format. So we, you know, we we are in interesting times, and, and certainly that, that as, as you've heard now in a couple of talks, that has affected quite a bit how we do things. Um but what we do should should continue despite the limitations and one of the big aspects of cancer care is actually clinical trials and participation in clinical trials and the main the main reason for this is because as as we know <clears throat> although we've done significant strides in cancer and cancer treatment and we've uh moved the needle quite significantly in fact for patients you know we turned this into a chronic disease uh but we we still are a long way from from curing cancer from uh ensuring that cancer will essentially become a curable disease and this is what a lot of the clinical trials uh are and continue to do is complement and move our care uh uh clinical care excellence uh into research questions that ultimately will create the options of the future if you think about every treatment option that is available to uh, our patients today, available to you, uh, that actually did come at the heels of, of well-conducted clinical trials that took promising agents or a promising question uh, and applied it in a, in, a, in a prospective fashion in a clinical trial. And ultimately, uh, when positive, this essentially changes uh, our standard of care, so clinical trials in oncology remain uh, a, a key uh, element in uh, in our uh, our care pathways uh, and and a prime element in 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 most of the cancers we treat you know covid nineteen has certainly affected uh, quite a bit access and part of it access to clinical trials because of a lot of different reasons many of them have do not necessarily have to do with 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 our patients, uh, but more to do also with our practices and how they've been overstretched because of COVID-19. But I, I want to make sure that, <clears throat> you know, our patients are always reassured that the priority remains to care for them, and, and, and part of that is to ensure that the clinical trials uh, are available for them as as uh care gets even more complex, and as you've heard uh you know in the the prior two talks we have a number of of, of agents in development that are specifically targeted to a molecule or to a protein uh and we have a lot uh, and a lot of different ways to identify these targets now from the tissue to the blood, so we have an incredible ease. Uh, when used appropriately to find the targets that we want to go after, and we have a whole list in uh, and, 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 and coming in 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 the near future as well of agents that have these specific targets in mind, uh, including uh, molecular, immune, and other forms of therapies and so clinical trials uh, you know help enhance access a lot of these agents that otherwise would not be available in actual clinical care. Uh, so there are a lot of a lot of uh, positives uh, in terms of how research contributes to the treatment options, and primarily focused on the fact that it expands significantly treatment options, and ultimately we hope that a lot of this research uh, changes the landscape of how we treat cancer in the future. Um, part of the challenges of uh, of COVID-19. Uh, is uh, mobility and and patients able to come to the clinic. Uh, And for a lot of different reasons, Uh, one, exposure uh, to potentially sick patients and and then the risks that come with it. Uh, Our patients are a vulnerable patient population, so patients with cancer, patients who are undergoing treatment, have a higher risk of being more sick uh, from covid-19 and even dying from covid-19. And so that has moved uh, uh a lot of our clinics into the world of telehealth or telemedicine. Uh now a lot of a lot of the institutions uh, uh and 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 practices have been preparing for uh for telehealth and telemedicine as part of the future before even covid-19 hits. So covid-19 has accelerated essentially our desire to provide this as an option to a lot of our patients. Now, the the main question, is it for everyone? And the answer is likely not in the future. Is it very useful? The answer is absolutely. It allows essentially a lot of our patients who live farther out, who do not want to travel uh, uh, frequently, although travel will remain necessary for most of our patients because uh, of treatment or scans or what have you. but But telehealth Especially as a lot of our agents are moving to oral agents, uh, you know, will facilitate us visiting with with our patients uh, at uh, at at times that otherwise they don't need to be in the clinic to do a quick check, a quick health check. It also may facilitate having patients who are in remission and away from treatment who would get their scans locally and review it, and 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 we we check on them very quickly on telehealth every other time. Uh, so that I, I see this as ultimately uh, uh, a way for us to facilitate patient care for about uh, 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 20% of our patients. Again, as I said, it's not for all, and it, it will not be for all. But we have increased its utility and its use in COVID-19, and there are a lot of goods about it. For example, in lots of places, family members are not allowed to be with a patient. Uh, and when 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 there is no need for to have the patient physically on site, this certainly facilitates face to face interactions with the patient and the families uh, in real time and As I said, it does cut down on the on the number of trips that are needed um, uh, There are uh, important aspects of of uh, telemedicine that that need to be understood, so there's certainly the loss of human uh, contact which certainly is is an issue and may cut down on some interactions with with, uh, with other members of the team, of the healthcare teams. But there are a number of things that one could prepare, a patient could prepare before engaging on telehealth or telemedicine encounter, uh, depending on the intent of the encounter. If it's a check uh, on uh, essentially uh, uh, medicine uh, and potential toxicities, so uh, i would i would i would uh, encourage my patients to ensure that uh, they have a good diary uh that they can share with the with the with the physician uh or the provider through uh, through the electronic health record prior to the to the discussion but if that's not possible ensuring that this is this is listed down uh and and notes are taken uh the other thing is, is of course if it's a second opinion to ensure again uh, that the records are accessible ahead of time to the to the physician or provider um and that all the questions are written down by the patient and the family to allow for a streamlined interaction certainly a little different world uh, than being physically sitting down uh and and discussing it with with the patient uh with the with the physician Uh, There are a number of other things that certainly would go into the preparation. Uh, But overall, I think uh, telehealth, telemedicine is here to stay. On the long term, it will remain a big part of our practice. It will not replace our practice, but will remain and will enhance, essentially, our capacity to care for our patients, especially those that travel distances. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Vakaisov. That was really so very helpful to people, and I think it really clarified for people just the importance of the telehealth, telemedicine appointments and, and how to prepare for them. And so thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I know there were questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, Our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, hospital pathology associates, PA, divisions of cytopathology, gynecologic and perinatal pathology, and molecular diagnostic lead pathologist for next-generation sequencing development and practice. Alina Health Laboratory, a part of Abbott Northwestern Hospital, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So Dr. Kerr is going to be addressing the role of the pathologist, why the molecular portrait of cancer is so important, understanding your pathology report, questions to ask your pathologist. And it's really my great pleasure to introduce and turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr.
5: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak today. It is my great pleasure to reiterate how a diagnostic pathology report and additional diagnostic technologies, including so-called biomarkers, are part of individualized or precision medicine in the care of cancer patients. I will be expanding upon some of the concepts that Dr. Chris and Dr. Morrow uh, described at the beginning of the conference with regard to pathology and the importance of pathology. So First I want to define pathology and what a pathologist does. I think of pathology as all of the -the behind-the-scenes work that occurs in a clinical laboratory in the practice of medical care. So every time you get a blood drawn or a biopsy or a surgery, a laboratory handles those specimens from you and performs tests. A medical laboratory is made up of teams of staff who specialize in various kinds of testing, including blood testing, testing for infections, small biopsy evaluation, and the processing of large surgical resection specimens, as are produced during major cancer surgeries. COVID-19 testing had to be rapidly developed over the last several months in medical laboratories. So basically anything that is drawn or removed or sampled from a patient in a medical setting is handled in a pathology laboratory. And a pathologist is the doctor that leads the medical laboratory and is responsible for the test results. Next I want to talk about how those biopsy and surgery specimens get from a patient to a pathologist for the various tests that are needed in cancer patients for precision medicine. I see a lot of lung cancer in my practice, so I will use that as an example. Um, My typical patient will first find out that they have a tumor growing in their lung on an X-ray or a CT scan or some other imaging study. And although in many patients lung cancer is suspected from the way the tumor looks on imaging, a tissue biopsy is definitely needed to make sure as there are a variety of other tumor types and even infections or other benign conditions that can look similar to cancer on an imaging study. A doctor who specializes in getting these small biopsies will carefully place a small needle in the tumor Uh, and remove some small tissue fragments from it to get a diagnosis. These samples are placed either directly onto glass slides or are placed in a preservative solution in a small bottle. And sometimes I, as a pathologist, go to the room during the biopsy and look at cells under the microscope while the patient and the doctor doing the biopsy are still in the room so that I can tell them whether they have enough cells for all of the tests that we need to perform Uh, these days, and so it is helpful for all of us to be there in the room at the same time so that we can work together to try to get the best sample so that the patient doesn't need to come back for another biopsy later. Um, So after that first biopsy, all of the slides and bottles of tissue go to the laboratory for further processing, and the tissue in the bottles is processed into this little block of wax that we cut into very fine, thin sections that are also placed onto glass slides to look at under a microscope. This is called formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded processing, or you might hear people say FFPE. The pathologist looks at all of the glass slides and tries to decide uh, what the tumor is that was biopsied. If we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine the kind of cancer that it is. So, for example, in lung cancer, there are important decisions that are made based on if the tumor is adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma or small cell carcinoma, which are all different kinds of lung cancer with different treatments. And in the example of lung cancer, adenocarcinoma treatment is the most likely to be influenced by the results of biomarker tests. So we have a different testing pathway often for um, adenocarcinoma as a type of cancer versus other types of lung cancer. And this, is, this parallel concept is true in uh, other um, cancers of other sites. So this process of making a diagnosis usually takes a few days, but it can take longer depending on the tumor type. After all of this work in the laboratory then, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive at least two or three different pathology reports. The first report is the diagnostic report containing the final diagnosis for the tumor. The diagnosis is based on the appearance of the tumor under the microscope, in addition to special types of stains that we do on the tumor tissue, often called immunohistochemistry. This diagnostic pathology report is the basis of many decisions that will happen in the treatment of the patient's cancer. And in fact, some studies have suggested that up to 80 percent of medical decisions are based on pathology reports or other laboratory results. Uh, so next, the, type of path- the next type of pathology report that you might see associated with the biopsy is the biomarker report. So um, these days, next-generation sequencing and other molecular reports We'll summarize what is going on in the tumor that may be useful for personalized treatment. Testing for biomarkers can take a few weeks or more after the initial diagnosis, which I know can be very frustrating, but we're getting faster at this all the time. Um, Molecular biomarker testing looks at the differences, basically, in cancer cells in comparison to other normal cells in the body. So cancers are typically growing out of control, Due to changes in their programming, commonly called DNA, these changes in the DNA come from a variety of come in a variety of flavors that you might hear. Um, and these changes that occur in cancer cells are called mutations, or fusions, or amplifications, or rearrangements, or other words. All of these words describe changes in the cancer cells that are different from the normal cells in the body. And researchers have found ways to make medicines that will block some of these mutations. So for example, the EGFR mutation in lung cancer now has a variety of medicines that can be used to block that mutation and stop the cancer cells from growing. And in some cases, we want to know if the cancer is producing too much of something. So you may have heard of pdl one testing in a number of different cancer types. With PD-L1 testing, we are looking under a microscope at a stain to determine whether the cancer is producing a a protein called PD-L1 to hide from the immune system. If the PD-L1 pathway is blocked by a medication, the body can then fight the cancer cells better just like it would fight off an infection. And so all of this testing information for a cancer will be described in one or more of these pathology reports. I really encourage you to have a copy of your pathology reports, especially as you are getting multiple opinions from different doctors who may have different medical record systems. You, I know that the pathology reports can be difficult to understand at first, especially if you don't have a medical background. So if you have questions about your pathology reports, I would first start with your oncologist or your primary care doctor who you know and trust, it is very likely that they have also discussed the pathology report with the pathologist already, and they may be able to answer all of your questions, and because they know a lot of things about your health, they may be able to put the diagnosis and mutation information in perspective when you are talking about treatment plans. I do also occasionally have patients call the laboratory to speak to me as their pathologist and I want you to know that that is also an option by calling the phone number listed in your pathology report. There are some difficulties though that are often encountered with patients trying to communicate with pathologists by phone. Um, and this is primarily because as a pathologist realize that I don't, I don't know you personally um, when, when calling on the phone and so I need to make sure that I can verify that the person calling me is actually the patient and not someone trying to get private medical information. Um, sometimes I get calls from oncologists with the patient on speaker phone, and I, that's a really great way to talk about a pathology report with both the oncologist and the pathologist at the same time. Um, as a pathologist, you know, I, I only know the information I read about you in the medical records, so I may not have all of the information that your oncologist has, and, and this collaboration is so important. Um, Another resource uh, regarding pathology reports that I recommend is through the College of American Pathologists. If you go to a website called YourPathologist.org, there's special information for patients on a variety of laboratory testing topics, including now COVID-19, at the top of the website. But also you can scroll down and there's a great video on reading and understanding a pathology report. And at Cancer Care, can help you get this resource after the conference. Uh, You also will next hear from another speaker on this call about resources for patients from the Association for Molecular Pathology, which is an organization of which I am a member, and I'm proud to recommend what they have developed for you on their website to answer questions about cancer genetics and biomarkers. So thank you so much for listening to me talk about pathology and biomarkers today. I'm now turning this conference back over to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding. And um, actually, thank you for mentioning um, the the resources that you've given. And we actually, at the end of the call, everyone will get um, a SurveyMonkey evaluation of the program. But in that SurveyMonkey, will be all the resources we mentioned during the call that we think would be helpful to have, in addition to what was mentioned during the call as well. So. Um it's although it is an evaluation, it also includes nice resources for you to have so thank you. I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be questions for you, Dr. Kerr, as well. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Tara Burke. And Dr. Burke is a Senior Director of Public Policy and Advocacy Association for Molecular Pathology, AMP. And actually, this uh, uh, the uh, Association for Molecular Pathology, AMP, is actually, uh, uh, it's really a partner on today's program. And um, we will, we have been working with them for a long time now, and it seems to make sense that they would be a partner on any program that we do that really focuses on this particular topic. So um, Dr. Burke will be addressing free programs re- and resources of the Association of Molecular um, for Molecular Pathology. Um, AMP, AMP is its uh, just acronym. And um, it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Burke.
6: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, and thank you to all um, of the speakers on today's call. I don't want to take up too much time. Um, I want to let uh, leave time for, for questions and let um, the phys- physicians answer um, questions that you may have. But I want to take a couple minutes to just introduce some of the patient-facing resources that the Association for Molecular Pathology or AMP has worked um, to put out and is continuing to um, enhance uh, going forward. So um, a number of years ago, um, the board um, put as one of its strategic objectives Um, to interact with and be collaborative with um, patient advocacy groups. And um, one way that we did that was through lunch and learn programs where we met with a number of patient and patient advocacy groups to talk about um, biomarker testing, testing that our members do. So um, Dr. Kerr provided um, an excellent um, introduction to what our members do. So um, our members briefly are um, molecular professionals, professionals, so physicians and doctoral scientists who performed molecular testing, so genetic DNA, RNA-based testing um, for a variety of conditions, one of those being oncology, but also infectious diseases such as COVID-19, uh, et cetera, as well as inherited conditions. And we wanted to talk to these patient groups and say, we, what are you guys doing in the space? How can we be helpful? We don't want to... Um, duplicate any of the efforts. A lot of um, uh, patient-facing groups such as Cancer Care and others have these excellent resources such as this call that we're on today. And, you know, how can we be helpful? So one thing that came out of those discussions was um, providing resources related to what biomarker testing is. So there's a lot of um, information on specific biomarker testing for lung cancer and whatever cancer um, an individual would want to learn about or focus on. Um, but where we found a gap was in understanding what exactly ha- your specimen is taken, say your tumor um, is assessed, and then what happens to it and when it undergoes this biomarker testing what actually happens and we wanted to to create a, some plain language materials um to do that so this year actually we launched um, those materials online um and we're and this is our first iteration, and we 're going to continue to build on these resources um so These resources um, can be found at our website, which is um, amp.org, and if you go under About um, at the top um, and go to Molecular Medicine for Patients, you can find our resources. And we have um, a cancer-specific one, which is our most developed website to date um, for the patient um, resources and um one of our key kind of infographics is kind of taking your specimen, you know, kind of behind the scenes, what happens to your specimen and what what is what does it actually mean to get biomarker testing. And I think that helps kind of um just um understand, you know, really what what's on where your specimen's going and what kind of information you're going to get from it. And we will provide um that the link to that information as well. And then just briefly um we are continuing to build this, inf- this information, and we want to build kind of more specific um, cancer-specific um, resources. We are also housing a lot of patient resources on our website. Um, so as this is sent out and you have a time to review it, if you have feedback or want to get involved in any way, um, my information will be available, and we welcome um, any feedback or any involvement um on our resources. And I'll just say thank you again, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Burke. That was really outstanding, and I know there'll be, there'll probably be questions for you as well during the Q&A and the wonderful resources that you're providing, which we will include also when um, after the program for people to have them as well. Um, and um, before we move on, I just want to say a few words for you about the resources of Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization um, providing support services to people throughout the country. And what do those look like? So um, most people contact Cancer Care through our 800 number um, or they visit our website um, and you've all gotten that information before. We'll also include it, of course, um, when you get the materials from us as well. So um, when you call us or when you um, email us, um, one of our oncology social workers would discuss with you um, your concerns and questions that you might have. And the services we offer include a case management, online support uh, uh, groups, um, and we also have telephone support groups. The online groups are interesting because they're they are um, they're, um, not in real time, so that basically you can post any time of the day or night. They are facilitated by oncology social workers who are looking at them during business hours, um, but they are kind of always aware of what you're posting and, and commenting on it as well. And there are certain guidelines to participating in the online groups. The telephone groups are in real time, um, but again, there are people from different parts of the country who participate, and that's been very helpful to them as well. We do have these particular workshops, so we offer quite a few of them, actually lots of them, on different topics and um, different cancer types and different topics as well. Um, and uh, we also have a number of publications. We offer uh, practical and financial assistance as well. So there are many, many different services and a copay uh, foundation as well. So there are many services you can access from cancer care, and we encourage you to take advantage of those services um, very much so. Um, and now, before we move on to the Q&A, I just have some brief questions to ask you at the end of the program so that um, we get a sense of what your experience has been on the program itself. So the first question is, and for those of you live streaming, you'll be able to address these questions, So, yes, no, again. There are just three of them. As a result of this workshop, I better understand the benefits of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine in predicting response to treatment, either yes or no. And then the next question is, as a result of this workshop, I better understand why the molecular portrait of cancer is so important in choosing specific cancer treatments, yes or no? And then the last question is, as a result of this workshop, I am better prepared to understand my pathology report, yes or no? Okay, I want to thank you all for participating in these brief questions. It really gives us a sense of what you knew coming into the program and what you know coming out of the program. So it's really very helpful to us in planning future programs that are most relevant to meet your needs. And now I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Norma.
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, that's star one to ask your question.
1: And we have um, some questions from our online participants. Um, And... um, the first question um, for Dr., um, Dr. Morrow and Dr. Bakai Saab, what treatment diary or symptom tracker do you recommend for your patients?
3: Uh, this is Michael Morrow. Um, I'm not sure there would be one specific. I mean, I think many treatments or are- even studies don't always require one. So having anything is helpful often for symptoms, you know, sort of a, a good notation of symptoms or problems when they occur, um, a good list of medications um, that are taken in addition to any other treatments, uh, basics. There are probably cancer-specific um, diaries and and um, logs that are probably better suited. And I, I probably would say to look for advocacy groups in specific cancers. I mean, I think cancer care um probably can point us in the direction um and um and, and other- cancer specific uh patient advocacy groups may have some tools out there but i would just say um it, i mean it and and of course discussion with the provider so so you know good it can be built quite easily the thing i mean it may not be so obvious what someone might be wanting to hear about or know about or to log so uh, i i
2: welcome other comments
4: yeah no i mean it it is it is uh site specific you know, every institution may have its preferred ways. Trials may or may not have their own diaries included that would be given to the patient. And again, it all depends on the platform, clinical platform, research platform. And you know, there are there are certainly uh, uh, some if it's pill pill diaries that you know are are uh, apps. Uh, on phones or, or iPads, uh, that would be actually preferable to discuss first with the clinical team, if they're appropriate. Um, and there's the good old way, you just have a notebook and and you write on it on a daily basis, you know, what symptoms you've experienced, and I've had a lot of patients do that, track. Some of them excel uh, track their temperatures and their symptoms on Excel sheets. Uh, so there's nothing really specific.
1: Excellent, thank you. um and another question this one would be um for Dr. Kerr. How is a patient assured that the pathology results are accurate? Is there a second review automatically conducted within the department, or does a patient specifically have to specifically request one? That's
5: a really good question um so uh, within my practice, and it's, it's practice-specific, every new diagnosis of cancer is reviewed internally by a second pathologist. So we always co-sign, we call it co-signing a new diagnosis of cancer to another pathologist. And that's something that you can figure out from looking at your pathology report. So it'll list who the primary pathologist is responsible for the report and anyone who might have consulted on that case, and looked at it also. Um but, you know, even within groups, um, it if just because you have a couple of pathologists in a group look at your cancer, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, a second opinion might not be worthwhile. And I would recommend talking to your oncologist or your primary care provider about your diagnosis and whether or not they think that um your particular situation might um might warrant a second opinion. So we actually automatically, uh, in some cases, will do second opinions if you transfer care, say, to a different healthcare system. Um, Their pathologist might review again your case before their doctors uh, get involved in your care for a medical second opinion. So there are a number of ways where um, pathologists re-review your diagnosis, and I would talk to your oncologist about whether it's something that you would have to request to go out to, a, you know, say an expert pathologist, or whether um, another pathologist within the same group has has looked at your at your report and so forth.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Burke. Did you want to add anything to that, or anyone else? Or... Okay. Sounds very yeah, comprehensive. Would... Okay. Oh yes, yes.
6: Um, I I think Dr. Kerr had an excellent answer. I would just also um, add that laboratories have kind of internal uh, quality assurance measures and um, are regulated by, um, under CMS, under the clinical laboratory improvement amendments, um, which helps um, to ensure quality results.
1: Excellent. That's important. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay. Um, And then this question, uh, I guess for both Dr., Moro and Dr. Bakai Sab, um, who is eligible for biomarker testing?
3: I'll let my colleague take Chris crack at that one. Okay. Yeah.
4: Thank you, uh, well, I mean, again, it depends on on the situation, and that's uh, a decision that has to be made with uh, with the clinical team. And depending, again, you know, in in settings like 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 ours and 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 Dr. Moro's. Uh, uh, you know clinical setting uh where we have an abundance of clinical trials and a largeness of of availability of clinical trials that may depend on checking wide uh biomarkers i mean we automatically do these uh checks at at the door but you know in a in a pra- in a practice where most uh, most care is standard of care treatments then it it has to be individualized whether you know there are approved modalities or not that depend on biomarkers. So I know this answer is broad, but it really has to be individualized.
3: Uh, this is Michael Morrow. I would I would just
4: add that um,
3: many large centers, research centers, or just cancer centers often have what's called a bio study or or a backbone where almost any patient, sometimes even not with a cancer diagnosis, but almost any cancer patient diagnosis is often. There's a gentle request that if the blood or a tumor sample is being taken, if, um, the, if the patient is willing, and, and of course um, informed consent and, and permission will be requested, but to put that into the into the into a bank, so um, biomarkers and diagnostics can be done, if not today, but tomorrow, ten years from now, those are invaluable samples. So, um, if the spirit of the question one who is who's eligible, I think almost everyone should consider themselves that they could contribute or their cancer might be better treated with a biomarker test. Um, and then, you know, then it gets down to the specifics, as my colleague mentioned, that there's um, it's often there are going to be certain scripts for a clinical study. There are going to be certain scripts for a certain cancer. There are going to be certain scripts for a certain cancer center and what they might want to do versus another. So I think keep, keep asking that question. That's a very good question, especially in 2020 and beyond
1: excellent. And um for Dr. Makai Saab, is it possible to use diagnostic testing at home, like chemotherapy blood markers, if patients do not feel safe going to a clinic or hospital for testing? Uh,
4: that's that's more complex. Uh the the short answer is overwhelmingly no, but the 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 other answer to this is depends again where you live. Uh so for example, you know, we do have uh in, in some aspects of our care a choice of uh doing liquid biopsies, meaning, you know, just checking the circulating tumor DNA to decide on the next therapy and we've essentially worked with the companies that run these tests and they do have ambulatory uh uh nurses and phlebotomists who essentially would go to the patient's home and would draw this with there's also you know services through home healthcare but again it has to be with a purpose if a patient is being treated actively then it doesn't make sense to do that because they're going to be in the clinic anyways if it's for routine testing or for change in decisions and the patient has has no uh uh, uh treatment uh, uh planning uh uh, at the time, then, then you know, there may be some solutions. But, again, they're not as widespread and as desirable as uh, as they should be at this point.
3: Dr. Mester, if I, could, if I could add a quick
4: comment, maybe a little bit of optimism.
3: I gave this example of chronic mild leukemia where we have a specific test. And prior to the pandemic and definitely with the pandemic, we have taken advantage of what called remote testing through a kit where instead of coming to the center, a patient can have a kit sent to their home not a home blood draw, but at least a local blood draw that can be sent to a reference center, like a, a major cancer center, for continued diagnostics or biomarker or you know precision medicine tests done in, repeatedly in that same center often gives you the best data and best answer. Um, and I think we continue to push the envelope to say, how can we do this easier, better? I have colleagues that have pioneered, for example, having a drop of blood drawn on a piece of paper and, and being able to do the same assay that we would do on a tube of blood in, 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 for a patient who's sitting in the clinic that day. So stay tuned and and, and definitely ask about the possibility of remote testing. Um, this, the pandemic's taught us a lot, and I think we'll, we'll see more and more examples like that.
1: Excellent. Um, and another uh, question, uh, this will be our last one, sorry, um, for um, Dr. Um, Bakai Saab. But um, I don't know it also applies to um blood cancers as well but um do biomarkers change as time passes this person had heard about changes in biomarker status in solid tumors does this happen in all cancers Could
4: I mean you some do, on on and, yeah some do and some don't uh, there are certain biomarkers that you know are uh, unchanged for the lifetime of the of the cancer i mean, we're talking about solid tumors um and there are certain uh, you know, markers that change. For example, I'm just going to take it to HER2, uh, which is a target that's present in a number of different cancers, mostly in breast, gastric, and, and we're finding out in colorectal. Uh, the level of amplification, meaning how highly expressed the target is, can change with time depending on treatment options, et cetera, but there are also other biomarkers that we look for that may arise that uh, project uh, resistance to certain targets. So the, the answer is a lot of dyna- dy- there is a lot of dynamism in uh, how the tumor expresses certain, certain elements. Uh, but overall, most of the elements that are expressed, at least in solid tumors, uh, remain so in some stable fashion for the lifetime of the cancer.
1: Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. But I also want to thank our participants because you've also been terrific in asking such great questions online um, and um, really enhances the call. Um, and as we're about to wrap up the program, I know there are many more questions in queue, so I do want to say a few words about that as well. Um, for those of you who um, may still have questions or who asked a question but have another question you want to ask, that follows up to it, we do recommend that everything you learn today, you take it back to your treating healthcare team because they, of course know you the best. and we hope that the the questions um, you know what you've learned today will help you ask more informed questions of your healthcare team because you have this body of knowledge that you've gained from this program today that's really important. Um, we also um encourage you to be in close touch with your healthcare team where we've heard that today. Um, the pandemic has, and to some extent uh, made people sometimes a bit more reluctant to go in for in, in, in person appointments. And so we have telemedicine and telehealth, but there are some appointments that are really essential and the screening and all the things that have to be done. Please follow up with your healthcare team about that. We don't want you to miss um, an important step along your treatment course um, Through fear, we want you to talk to your health care team about your concerns, and and have them be your best guide um, in helping to to, for you to follow the very best um, you know protocol for your treatment. That's really important, particularly today. It's really very important um, and going forward. We also are entering a holiday season, so we ask all of you to remain safe, wear masks, social distancing, all that is very important. We didn't talk about that during the call today. Nevertheless, we do encourage all of you to really take good care. And for those of you who are feeling um, you know, it's quite normal to feel um, alone in general. Um, and with social distancing, people feel more alone. That's normal to feel that way. But we do have all these support programs. Cancer care has them, and there are, there, are, there are programs like that throughout the country. So if you contact our social work staff, I'm sure they can assist you with those feelings that you have, as can your healthcare care team, because remember, your healthcare care team consists of many different disciplines as well. So with that being said, um, as we conclude the program today, I do not want any one of you to feel you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of a really large community of supportive organizations that can help you. You've heard of some of them today. There are many more we'll be sending you information about. Take advantage of them. Call them. Um, many of their services are free, and your healthcare team really knows you the best. So you can start with them as well. You might be surprised at how helpful they can be with you um, around some of your concerns and questions that you may have. Again, thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day.